My name is Dave Cote, and you're listening to the Root and Stem podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. In this episode, we explore the research being done in order to better understand our ocean. My name is Dave Cote. I'm a research scientist working in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, and I work for a government department called Fisheries and Oceans. And what we do is help Canada achieve its marine conservation targets which are to protect 30% of Canada's oceans by 2030. Basically, that involves three main parts, and one is trying to identify areas that we would want to protect for conservation, so looking for biodiversity hotspots. And then the second part is once we identify some of these areas, studying them to understand the key species and processes that we want to protect, and then once they're established, to monitor these areas to uh, so we make sure that they're healthy for future generations. There's a lot of areas in Canada's waters that we don't have a good understanding for. They haven't been explored. And so in these areas, there might be important habitats that have lots of biodiversity. And so, you know, think, for example, of these deep water corals and sponge areas that provide habitat for a lot of different species. And so we go into these areas and look for some of these biodiversity hotspots, and we might identify them as, as possibly important for protection. So that's the one aspect. And so that involves a lot of surveys and we rely on indigenous knowledge in some cases to point us to good spots to look and, uh, and a lot of different research technology to, to, to find them. And once we do that, I mean, we need to understand the system so that we can set what we call conservation objectives that the management groups at fisheries and oceans can use to set up regulations to protect those elements of the ecosystem. After that, we go in and we do routine monitoring where we would collect data on that system to make sure it's not degrading over time and doing what we want it to do. We have a team in place that do the bulk of the, the research at sea, but I think it's important as a research scientist to get out on the water yourselves and see things firsthand. So, so and I really enjoy that aspect of my job is, is getting on the vessels and doing some of the research. So that's some of the funnest parts of the job. We're working in a lot of areas where we don't have a lot of baseline information to track change. So for example, Fisheries and Oceans does a lot of research vessel surveys, you know, many times a year along the shelf of Newfoundland and Labrador, and they're collecting data on commercial species so that they can manage quotas and try to have sustainable harvests. But there's a lot of areas that are either too shallow or too deep or the bottom's too rough, and they don't have very much information in those areas. And those are the areas that my team works in a lot. So, so part of what we're doing is try to establish a baseline to be able to measure change. But there are a few examples with data sets that, that we've worked with that have been collected since uh, the 1970s, so way before I worked for DFO. And we looked at some of these data sets, and they, they would go from the 70s to the 2000s. And they're on Arctic char fisheries up along the coast of Labrador. And so a really neat data set with information on you know what the char are eating you know how big they are where they're captured and all that information covered a period when we had a climate event in the northwest atlantic where the waters got really cold and uh, and we saw the effects that it had on char which which actually changed the diet that they were eating they got smaller their populations got smaller and uh, and so there's lots of effects on char from that climate event and that kind of informs us 
how these ecosystems might change going forward when water's warm. How adaptable are they? And so the good news is that we saw char were able to adapt and they were able to eat different things, but they still suffered a little bit. And so, you know, so we know that climate is going to have some impacts. Some other things that we do, I guess, is looking forward in time. And so we'll use uh, ocean models, climate models to predict how much, uh, how species will change their distributions. And so, for example, we look at uh, cod species and we can see, try to track how fast they're going to move north over time, which has implications for not only the ecosystem, but the people that are trying to catch them and harvest them. So all that is going to change over time. So it's a big question that we're trying to look at. So eDNA stands for environmental DNA. And I think all the listeners will know that DNA is basically the blueprint of life. So every species has its own unique blueprint. And these blueprints are made up of, of four building blocks that are, are put together in different sequences or different orders. And all species, when they're going around with their daily lives, are shedding eDNA into the environment. And so that could be like when you scrape your skin, it could be through excretions, or when an animal dies and they break apart, the eDNA goes into the environment. And so in the ocean, um, we'll find DNA particles floating around in the water or, or resting on the sediment. And several years ago, researchers found out that if they take a scoop of water or a scoop of sediment, that if they extra extract that DNA, they can actually identify those sequences and compare them to known databases and figure out what animals were living in that, that environment. And so it's a really new, powerful technique that is really a, a really good tool that we can use to understand our ecosystems. There's a variety of approaches that, that you can use, and it can be as simple as somebody just walking along the shore and getting a scoop of water and sending it to a lab. Um, but typically what we do offshore is we have these devices called Niskin bottles, and they're basically a hollow cylinder with two end caps that we drop down into the water column when it's open. And then we can remotely trigger that from the surface to close it when the Niskin sampler is at the right water depth. And so we bring that water sample back up to the surface into the lab and we filter the water, which takes all the particulate matter out of the water, including the DNA. And then that filter paper goes to a lab where they extract the DNA and then they sequence it. So figuring out the order of those, those um, uh, DNA particles which they can then match to databases and figure out what animals are in the water column. And so it's a, it's, it's a neat process, but one really important aspect where we're not holding the sample in our hands, we can say, oh, this is a, an Atlantic cod that, I'm hold, that we're getting here. We're just getting, we have to, you know, basically take the computer's word for it that we detected Atlantic cod. Um, we have to be really careful about contamination. And so if we weren't doing our job very well and eating a tuna sandwich, while we are processing our samples and a little bit of tuna DNA fell in our sample, we would think that we had tuna in our sample when it may not be there. So we have to be really careful about contamination and really careful um, about running some other tests to make sure to prove to ourselves that we're not contaminating our samples. One of the, I guess, typical approaches people use DNA for is for understanding biodiversity. And the one really neat aspect about DNA is that with that water sample or sediment sample, we can get information on the whole tree of life. So from microbes to phytoplankton, zooplankton, fish, marine mammals, all the way up the food chain from one sample. And that's really hard to do with other methodologies, like where we would, let's say we, we took a, a trawl net through the water column, 
we might get a lot of some fish species, maybe some zooplankton, but that's about it. And when we take a water sample from that same area, we're going to get, sometimes we're getting hundreds of species where we're only getting tens of species for those nets. So that's a, so that's a really powerful aspect of what we're doing is how holistic eDNA is. But more recently, I guess people are trying to make advantage, advances to figure out if they can actually estimate abundance or get some index of abundance of the different animals that are there. And so that's kind of more of a developing field, but there's indications that we can do that and even understand if we're catching individuals from different populations. And so, so the whole field is advancing really quickly. And those are some of the areas that people are working hard on. Um, but for now, I guess the biodiversity thing is, is the area that is pretty, is getting pretty standard. And it's important to note that I don't, I think most people feel that eDNA is not going to replace our conventional sampling. It's really providing a different perspective. So uh, you can imagine if you went out into the woods with a, a blindfold on, you could listen to all the different bird species and come up with a list of birds you heard based on their calls. And then you could send the same person out with earmuffs on and, and just do, do a visual census of the birds they see. And they're gonna see each, each list is gonna be different from one another because each method has its own biases. So, um, and trawls give us really good information on individuals in terms of their health and their size and their reproductive status, all those things that you might not be able to get from eDNA. So conventional sampling is still important, but eDNA is really helpful because it can give us that holistic perspective across. So we're getting multiple different, multiple types of, of animals in one sampling method. The other thing is that we can sample multiple habitats with the same method. So for example, a trawl, a typical trawl is only good in one environment. You can drag it along the bottom if it's flat. Whereas we can do eDNA in the deep ocean, in shallow water, up in the water column, in rough bottoms, open bottoms, we can do it pretty much everywhere. And so that allows us to compare the data across ecosystems. And then the third part is, is the cost. And so because all we need to get is a water sample, we, may, we can use smaller boats and we can do it quicker than we can if we have to do the multiple systems that we would have to try to characterize a whole ecosystem with other methods. And so I think those three factors make it really attractive to include into our programs. But again, it's, it's really a complementary piece. It's not to replace everything that we're doing now. It's important to note that, again, we don't see eDNA replacing the really rich indigenous local knowledge that's out there. I mean, you know, it's that, that information is irreplaceable. But there are, are Again, in a complementary manner, this is something that indigenous communities can collect rather easily, and it provides them with really good information on the communities that are there for animals they might not be able to see, or maybe more cryptic or difficult to detect during certain times of year. Like let's say if there's sea ice and um, you can't really see what's under the sea ice very well, you can get an eDNA sample and figure out what's happening there. And so, um, the communities that we've worked with, indigenous communities, we, you know, they have really rich knowledge sets, but they're also eager to get more information because they know that the more information they have, the better they can manage their ecosystems in a sustainable way and to maintain their culture. And so I think they're very much incentivized to get all the information they can to add to their already rich knowledge base. Most researchers I know love to share 
opportunities to go and see what they see. I mean, we get this really privileged view of the world. Um, we get to see some really neat things and it's, it's really exciting for us to bring someone new to that area and experience what we get to see. And so there's often many opportunities as, as a volunteer to uh, participate in programs. And even in terms of being a, a student, like there's graduate student opportunities that we try to get people involved, especially in indigenous communities where we want local people to be involved and even leading the research. And these kind of programs have, have really helped us actually during the COVID years when we were unable to travel um, in the North because of risk of contaminating communities. And our programs would have totally shut down had we not had local people that had the capacity to keep these programs running. And so basically they they transition into a leadership role of, of collecting these data, you know, putting transmitters in fish, um, doing research surveys and vessels, and they kept the whole program going quite well. And so um, it was really rewarding for us to see to see um, that transition happen because we, we feel that's how research should be done in the North that's heavily integrated with, you know, with indigenous people and their values because they know what research needs to be done to help them. And, and we really need to get that input. It's probably no surprise, but the thing that keeps a lot of us scientists up at night is, is climate change. You know, it, it goes beyond just temperature. The temperature affects, you know, what species can live there and how much energy they're using. But it also has really big implications for what the water chemistry is. And so as carbon gets soaked up by the ocean, the ocean becomes more acidic and that causes problems for animals that have calcium as skeletons like deep water corals. It can affect currents both locally, um, which can affect productivity, but also global currents, which have huge implications for not only ocean conditions, but our, our climate in general. And so uh, a big challenge that we have is getting enough baseline data to understand how this change is going to impact things, especially in the north and deep, deep oceans. And, um, and so we've got to do a better job at, at understanding that information so we can see what's changing, but also to do a lot of work in um, figuring out what, how these changes are going to manifest themselves. And that's a really complicated question, but a lot of people are working hard at it. And I would say a secondary thing would be as humans, we're, you know, constantly pushing into new areas. We're always trying to find new resources we can extract. And so we're going into deeper waters, going further north or into polar regions. And I think it's really important that we understand those systems before we start to exploit them too much so that we can do it in a responsible and sustainable manner. And so again, I think society is, you know, we're trying to, to get ahead of, ahead of it so that we can get an understanding of what's happening there to, to do it responsibly. Aside from the, the topics, I guess an important part of it is, is the who. So who is going to be doing the research? And, and that's where we need to become more inclusive and, we, and involve you know, indigenous researchers and perspectives in what we're doing so that we make sure that the research is, is helping all aspects of our society. For more about ocean conservation, check out the Root and Stem magazine at pinois.com or more episodes of the Root and Stem podcast available to download on your streaming platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google.